Good morning, everyone. Uh, let's pray together. Our gracious Father, help us to see your good character in this passage. Help us to see your determination to do good for us. Help us to be assured of your promised blessings. And Lord, help us to live accordingly. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, in 2015, uh, Lucy and I got married, and our honeymoon took us to the Cook Islands. It's a beautiful place with amazing reefs and beaches, and also many great bushwalks. One particular bushwalk began at the end of a road, and we parked the car and set off past some properties along a dirt track leading to the mountainous bushland. We were only 100 metres from the car when something out of the corner of my eye caught my attention. A rather large, rotund animal rose to its feet and advanced slowly toward us in a startled and seemingly threatening manner. Being a new husband of only a few days, my protective instincts kicked in. I halted Lucy with a hand and ushered her behind me, bravely putting myself in harm's way to shield my new wife. I motioned for her to remain still, my heart racing as I kept careful watch on this fierce predator. I thought to myself, this is what being a husband is all about. I started to edge back toward the car ever so slowly. For me, these moments and thoughts passed in slow motion, but in reality, it was only a few seconds since the beast rose when Lucy said, Dan, it's a pig. On edge and completely dismissive of Lucy's nonchalant attitude, I maintained focus on the dangerous circumstances that had happened upon us. In my mind, death was a very real possibility. I mean, wild pigs can gore you to death, right? And that's when Lucy said again, Dan, it's tied to a post. It's a farm animal. I didn't need to be afraid. I was safe. We were secure. I was just too blind to see that all was fine. Too often, we see the immediate circumstances around us and take them as gospel. We believe our current circumstances determine our future. We allow what our eyes see and our bodies experience to be our hope, or as the case may be, our hopelessness. We've come to understand over previous weeks, the people of Zechariah's time were facing quite the set of circumstances. They were once a chosen nation, elevated and made prominent, but stubbornness and rejection of God brought judgment upon them. Their temple, their way of life, and their home were all destroyed. They were exiled and sent to live in foreign lands for 70 years, seemingly deserted and abandoned. When eventually released with a direction to rebuild the temple, their efforts were thwarted, Ezra 4, and their living conditions were less than ideal, Haggai 1. Yes, they fell a long way from where they once were. Yet the circumstances they found themselves in were not their future. Their safety, their security, their peace and confidence for tomorrow were not grounded on their current condition. No, Instead, in this chapter, we see that God 
had determined to do good to them, verse 15, and secured a future full of blessings for them. God is faithful. He keeps his promises. In Genesis 12, verses 2 and 3, God made this covenant promise to Abram. I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse. And all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. The name Zechariah means the Lord remembers, and we see that very clearly in today's chapter. Chapter 8 is, of course, a continuation of chapter 7. Men from Bethel came to ask if they should continue fasting and mourning. The mourning and fasting in question became a practice following the fall of Jerusalem and destruction of the temple. And in chapter 7, the answer given is brutal. But now, as chapter 8 expands on that answer, we see that mourning turns into celebration. We see the fasting turn into feasting. Yes, the Lord determined to do good to the people of Judah. They have much to hope for. Their hope is not founded on the circumstances they've been in for the last 70-odd years. Their hope is founded on the Lord, on what he has promised, and it's the same for us. And that is my very long-winded introduction. Let's take a closer look at what promises and blessings the Lord announces in this chapter. The first thing to notice about this chapter is that we can be sure these promises are from the Lord. Thirteen times it says in this chapter, the Lord Almighty says, or the Lord says, or declares the Lord. So the promises in this chapter are from God and not from Zechariah. The second thing to notice is in verse 2. I am very jealous for Zion. I am burning with jealousy for her. God has a special relationship with his people. It's not the type of jealousy we might initially think of. It's not a feeling born from resentment or envy, and therefore it is not harmful as sinful human jealousy can often be. Instead, God's jealousy is about the preservation of his honor and the protection of something supremely special to him. The Gospel Coalition defines God's jealousy as his holy commitment to his honor glory, and love. In this chapter, his jealousy is evident in the blessings he promises, which, as we later read in verses 20 to 23, attracts and draws people from many nations to him. His jealousy is the source of the blessings outlined in verses 3 to 13, and briefly we'll go through them now in a list-like fashion. Verse 3, God promises to dwell amongst his people. Verses 4 to 5, he promises long life and many happy and healthy offspring. You could say the makings of a great nation. Verse 7, he promises a regathering of the still scattered exiles with the purpose of living with them as a faithful and good provider. Verses 10 to 11, he promises a time of peace and safety. And verses 12 to 13, He promises a period of fruitfulness and good provision from the land, such that other nations will be blessed by them. These verses outline or describe God's plan for Jerusalem, and it's all good. We can, I think, also read these verses as a shadow of the new Jerusalem, the heaven in which all who profess faith in Christ will one day stand. 
It is a representation of the blessings of peace, security, abundance, long eternal life, truth, and intimacy with God. This is what awaits the Christian. For those in Christ, these are your true circumstances always. Last night, I was woken by a crying and screaming Edith. As I knelt by her bedside and cuddled her, I asked what was wrong. Too articulately for 2.30 in the morning, she told me she was scared of the curlews. And so began a half hour of reasoning that curlews were not dangerous, that curlews had not the limbs to be able to gain access to her bedroom, and that curlews did not possess the keys to the house, and that Daddy wouldn't let the curlews hurt her. Although she returned to sleep, she was not convinced of her safety from the birds. Our circumstances have the tendency to keep us from trusting in God's faithfulness and his goodness. And like the people of Judah, when we allow our circumstances to be the promise of our future, we are stifled and we are afraid. Fear grips us into complacency and inaction, as we initially saw with those who were directed to rebuild the temple. When faced with persecution, they practically ceased work. But God is very clear in verse 15, do not be afraid. Look to God's goodness. Look to what he has promised. I do want to be very clear. I'm not saying that our circumstances don't matter and we should be cheery and happy no matter what we face. By no means. Even as we wait Jesus' second coming, we will find ourselves weary, persecuted, suffering, of ill health, unfairly treated, and mourning. And these things will make us feel like rubbish. The point being made here is that in God's mercy, he has determined to do good to us and we can trust wholly and fully in the promise that our future is sealed in Christ. As it says in our New Testament passage, Romans 8, 38 and 39, For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Therefore, when you are chastised for your faith, your salvation is secure because it is determined by God. Therefore, when it feels like the world is against you and everything is going wrong, your salvation is still secure because it is determined by God. Therefore, insert your personal circumstance, your salvation is still secure because it is determined by God. To put it plainly, and perhaps I should have started with this, God is in control of our future and he's already secured it through Jesus. No one can remove it. And that brings us to verses 14 to 17, where we see yet again the part that we are to play in this restored relationship with God. The more I read through chapter 8, the more it felt like a summary of the book of Zechariah so far. Time and again in the chapters we've read, we've learned of God's expectation for us to live obediently and seek holiness. Notice here God's determination to do good comes first. His mercy comes first. His unmerited favor is gifted to the Israelites in his determination to do good to them. And then he outlines how he would like them to respond. Verse 16 and 17, speak the truth to each other. 
and render true and sound judgment in your courts. Do not plot evil against each other, and do not love to swear falsely. I hate all this. God requires of us continued obedience. We are to love what he loves and hate what he hates. Specifically in these verses, we're called to love our neighbor. God wants us to deal with others in truth and honesty, with justice and integrity. And this is quite the contrast with the picture painted in verse 10, where it says, I had turned everyone against their neighbor. With the previous generation, their continued unfaithfulness led to judgment. And this is what is at stake for the current generation. They are in God's favor once more. He is restoring, reforming, and replenishing his relationship with his people. God's jealousy for his people demands faithful living. In fact, more than that, it demands a faithful heart, not solely interested in rituals like fasting, but in loving the Lord and loving his people. In a much different way, I see this play out with some of my students at school. Often I will find myself helping a student who may be struggling with their learning. I can promise the student a fix to their issue, but it invariably requires them to play a part. They might have to do some extra practice, uh, change the method they're using, or simply apply more effort. Too often I come across them again having the same issue. And why hasn't it resolved? Because they haven't taken on board my advice. They haven't done what was required of them. It's no different for us. We've been gifted grace through Christ, made righteous by his sacrifice and obedience to death on a cross. If we truly believe this good news, our faith is proven through our continued striving for obedience and conformity to Christ. In our final verses of this chapter, we come to both the answer to the question about fasting and the purpose behind God's promised blessings and our required obedience. I just want to reread from verse 20. You can follow along if you like. This is what the Lord Almighty says. Many peoples and the inhabitants of many cities will yet come, and the inhabitants of one city will go to another and say, let us go at once to entreat the Lord and seek the Lord Almighty. I myself am going. And many peoples and powerful nations will come to Jerusalem to seek the Lord Almighty and to entreat him. This is what the Lord Almighty says. In those days, ten people from all languages and nations will take firm hold of one Jew by the hem of his robe and say, let us go with you because we have heard that God is with you. God's purpose in his restoration of Jerusalem goes back to his initial covenant promise with Abraham. All peoples on earth will be blessed through you. We have seen God bless those outside of his chosen people Israel already, Rahab and Ruth. We see the ultimate fulfillment of this prophecy following Christ when the gospel message is eventually taken to the Gentiles, to us. And peoples of the earth will continue to be blessed until Christ comes again. How is God doing that? Through his jealousy. God's good news of blessings produces faith, which requires obedience, which brings glory to God. The result of that, as these verses outline, is that many will seek the Lord because they know that, verse 23, God is with you. For the people whom Zechariah was speaking to, their role was to believe in the safety and security of God's blessings and live obedient lives in light of these promises. 
Their obedience will make God look glorious and attract others to him. In this way, they are like a light, a beacon to his holiness and his goodness. Matthew 5, 16, let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds and glorify your father in heaven. Now, Zechariah was on about rebuilding the temple. And post-Christ, the temple is God's church. It is us. As each person comes to a saving faith in Christ, they become another stone in the temple, and so it is slowly being built. Through our faith and obedience to God's merciful blessings shown in Jesus and in the promises to come, we draw others to him. To put it crudely, we are the face of God's marketing plan. Not that he needs us or is dependent on us, but when we look beyond our circumstances and find joy in the promises of the Lord, we become a beacon for others, lighting the way to our Almighty Father. I cannot finish without answering the question that began these two chapters, seven and eight. Should they continue fasting? It seems that question is never answered, not directly anyway. I think we can summarize the two chapters and answer the question this way, though. Do not continue to perform rituals without first having the right heart. Instead, turn back to God, live faithful, obedient lives that demonstrate a love for God and a love for others. Live your life with certain expectation of the coming of God's kingdom. In this way, because of the Lord's mercy, we move from mourning to celebration, from fasting to feasting. Now, it also occurs to me that Christmas is a celebration of the hope given us by Christ. Christmas itself is a promise fulfilled, the promise of a saviour whose obedience gives us access to eternal feasting with God in heaven. With his birth, a star, a light, beckoned others to him. The story never gets old for me. Imagine a God looking down on his people, a people so far gone, so far astray. And what does he do? In his jealousy, in his determination to do good, he left the heavenly realms to dwell with his people, to gather his people and bring them home. What a time for us to hear these words from Zechariah, to be assured of the promises of God at a time when we celebrate the fulfillment of the promise of a saviour. And what a time to shine our light like that star over 2,000 years ago, beckoning others to see the glory of God. And may your faithful obedience glorify God and entreat others to him this Christmas. Thanks, everyone.